so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Brian Hyde filling in once again for Tim Alders. I just love the fact that there is such a thing as a disciple of liberty. And I I just want to take a quick moment here in contrast what it means to be a disciple of liberty as opposed to just a cheerleader or, you know, a supporter of liberty. See, uh, you know, one of them actually requires some skin in the game. Do you think about what discipleship entails and what it requires? And I'm just going to use for a handy example if you think about uh, the disciples that Jesus selected in the uh, in the New Testament. I mean, their lives got easier and better, and they all got rich and famous, and everybody adored them everywhere they went. Remember how that happened? Do you remember? Oh, no, that wasn't the case. In fact, most of them were uh, persecuted, hated, sometimes martyred. In fact, most of them were martyred. But they stood for something that mattered more than life itself. And I don't think liberty should be any different. So I'm not saying now go out there and get yourself martyred. But I'm saying thank you for being one of the people who cares enough about liberty that you're willing to do more than just give it lip service. You're willing to actually walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Got some fun stuff to share with you today. I hope that uh, this is useful information You know, there's a character trait that is desperately needed during tough times, and that is the trait of resilience. And I found a great article on the OrganicPrepper.com from Joanna Miller, not only talking about the importance of resilience, but even more importantly, talking about the importance of teaching children to become resilient. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm taking a, a longer view of the the battle for liberty. First of all, I'm realizing this is something that's not going to be one and done. Okay, kids, we secured it for you, and now you can just enjoy this in perpetuity for the rest of your days. We've got to teach them the skills to to stand up for and to maintain their liberty and to, you know, push back nonviolently if possible against the people who would try to exert unlawful authority over your life. And I don't mean legal. I mean like against the laws of nature and nature's God. But it starts with being resilient. Because no matter how well-intentioned you are, um, you're going to encounter opposition. You're going to encounter setbacks. It's an imperfect world. It's a fallen world. And that's part of life. There's going to be pain. There's going to be disappointment. How do you move forward no matter what? So Joanna Miller starts with the question, have you ever considered the importance of teaching children to become resilient? She says, for us as adults, it's easy to get frustrated these days. 
Whether you're a big picture person looking at the trends in surveillance technology and the great reset hubris, or if you're just an ordinary person frustrated by spiking prices and constant supply headaches. Many of us have had to tap into our inner resources to stand resilient in the face of these challenges. And she asked, how can we teach kids to do the same? How do we teach our children the vital skill of resilience? Now, her first suggestion is helping children find their tribe. And don't have a knee-jerk reaction because this is not a call. We should be more tribal. There's a lot of tribalism going on. But listen to how she's describing this. She says, many of us found our friendships and family relationships changed over this past year. She says, I know my children have dealt with the same thing. With remote schooling, they couldn't see friends in person anymore. In fact, she says, after my children, my children found, after talking online, many of their friends held widely different views on what's been happening. For instance, her children have had former friends tell them it's the fault of people like us, meaning the vaccine hesitant, that old people are dying. So it's worth the effort to help your kids find at least one or two kids who have similar interests and values. In her case, her daughter has a Canadian pen pal who's very like-minded. Now, they don't correspond super regularly, but it's still enough for her daughter to know that she's not alone. And her boys know how to practice OPSEC, right? Operational security. Don't blab all of your prep secrets. Don't give away all of your uh, preparations in general. But she says, we do know a couple of families in town around whom we can speak freely. Like-minded people. Your people. Part of your tribe. Next, she talks about how taking care of your own mental health will help your children. And I have to admit, I think I've failed on this one a lot of times. She said, Joanna Miller says, look, if you don't lose it every time the power goes out or every time the toilet clogs, your kids probably won't either. She says, we had so many frustrating plumbing problems when I first got on septic. I was constantly plunging. There were plenty of tears and frustration at first, but as I got better at managing clogs, it just became more of a regular chore. And these days, the kids only tell me about a clog if it's a spectacularly bad one. Most of the time, They get the plunger and deal with it themselves. No drama. Now, the same mentality applies in terms of eating habits. If all of your meals are made just right at very set times, your kids will see you being picky about food, and they'll be less likely to roll with changes. She says, I've written before about spiking commodity prices and how most of us will have to make adjustments in terms of grocery shopping. And again, if you can handle these changes gracefully, and be mentally resilient, your kids probably will too. Now here's the challenging part about helping your kids become more resilient, and that's learning how to be honest without being alarming. Joanna Miller says, I'm not a big fan of lying and saying everything is fine when it isn't. She says, I think it's important to teach kids about disasters and crises without scaring them. Teenagers in general have pretty good BS detectors. But she says, I need to watch my mouth and avoid complaining too much because I don't want to drag the family down with me. I try to be honest, and so far my kids have handled changes in our routine as well as can be expected. For example, she says, I've been making my own bread for well over a decade. However, I could not find yeast in the stores for months. Fortunately, one of my neighbors kept a sourdough starter and was willing to share it with me. 
we've mainly been eating sourdough ever since. Now, my kids aren't crazy about it, but they've seen the shelves at the store. So they understand. Next, she talks about helping kids develop resilience by getting fit and staying fit. Exercise can be a great way to spend quality time with your children and learn about their abilities and skill levels. And bringing along a friend or two can be interesting to observe how all the kids do with different group dynamics. So in Joanna Miller's case, she has three children. Her youngest child's best friend, she'll call him Joseph, is the oldest of three. She says, we invited Joseph on a hike recently. I planned on a hike of approximately three miles at elevation. I know my children can do that because they've done it many times with many hikes similar to my planned one. I asked Joseph's parents what they thought. They were willing to let Joseph give it a shot, but cautioned me. He's never done anything like that before. He tended to get hot and tired quickly, and he may need his inhaler. So Joanna says we packed plenty of water, snacks, and Gatorade, and agreed we would stop as soon as Joseph needed to. Well, not only did Joseph do the whole three miles, but he also climbed a lot of rocks along the trail and wanted to climb more. She says, I had to be the one to call it quits, mostly because I wanted to drive home before rush hour. Joseph's parents and I learned a lot, and we had a good discussion afterward. When Joseph saw his friend keeping up with older and taller teenagers, I'm pretty sure it motivated him far more than hiking with his little sisters. And she says, my kids enjoyed the hike because Joseph is genuinely funny. He's an interesting kid. And I believe Joseph gained a lot of confidence. We all won. Now, here's another important part of your kids' resilience, and that's helping your children choose their entertainment wisely. She says, I'm on the extremely strict end in some ways. My children have a stupid phone to talk and send photos to friends. There is no Snapchat, TikTok, or Instagram. In general, if we want to socialize, we try to meet people in person. Otherwise, we watch DVDs or read books. One of the beauties surrounding books is that they aren't grid-dependent. People have been passing long winter nights in front of the fire telling stories for millennia. Going back to that won't be the worst thing by a long shot if the grid breaks down. We read a lot of books and find it provides numerous topics for conversation. Now, she also points out here the right books can give kids a great deal of perspective. For example, she says, My teenage daughter complained a lot about me not treating her like an adult and letting her listen to adult conversations. So I let her read Yanmi Park's autobiography, In Order to Live. Now, it's a well-written, very adult book in many ways. That's because it's the true story of a 13-year-old girl escaping North Korea. She says, my daughter burned through it in two days because she kept wanting to know what would happen next. It's a relatively recent book, and you can watch Yeonmi Park giving interviews on YouTube to put a face to the woman in the story. She says, my daughter learned a lot about what some people do to survive. Plus, good books can give children ideas about what to do with their time. 30 years ago, children didn't need an electrical grid and the World Wide Web to stay entertained. Joanna Miller says, I played some computer games when I was younger, but there was a lot more street hockey and exploring the outdoors, reading books about how children lived before, can give your kids ideas and help them create their own grid-independent entertainment. When most of us think of childhood and adolescence now, we think of school, sports, music, and fun trips. As a parent... That's what I hear most other parents discussing. 
And she says, I do believe there is value in those activities, but we saw last year how quickly those things could disappear. In fact, she says, I would have been devastated if the marching band for me had stopped as a high schooler in the same way that activities stopped for high schoolers last year. Why is that? Because nothing matches the feeling of being a needed team member. So to that end, there's always work to be done, and what projects you do together will depend significantly on the ages and abilities of your children and your living situation. Having the kids involved in gardening is an option for many people. Some fortunate folks like her have uh, have a variety of farm projects to help keep everyone busy. However, if you live in a high-rise, your younger children can still help prepare food. And older children can help with meal plans and shopping. If you've had severe grocery shortages in your area, bringing your children to the store with you so you can see what's available and plan accordingly will be very instructive. Try to function as a team, particularly if you have teenagers. And it's also important to find meaningful projects to work on together. Now, she says it's also important to let your children fail and to let them see you fail. Joanna Miller says, I find it highly unlikely that things will go back to normal. Between vaccine passports, supply chain problems, international tensions, and the absolute destruction of our currency, I don't see a way out of the mess we're in without some pain. And it would be naive in the extreme to think we can buy up all the right gear, stock up on ammo, and come out of the zombie apocalypse unscathed. But by exposing your kids to small, manageable failures and frustrations, they'll be more prepared for more significant problems that may arise. She talks about how she had a significant fall from grace in her own life, saying she was once a suburban wife and mom, primarily suitable for office work and child raising. Then she found herself alone with her kids in a semi-rural area in a poorly maintained old cabin, living on a fraction of the income she thought she would have at her disposal. The bottom line is, she says, yes, I learned a lot over the years, and we now have a comfortable, productive home. But it was a rocky road. Big changes are always painful, and no amount of gear will change that. But your mindset will. Your ability to fail and still get up to face the next day will. Now, your kids can be a liability or an asset. She says, small children are a ton of work. There's no way around it. But if you have middle school and high school age children, they can be your biggest allies if adequately prepared. In Joanna Miller's case, she says, my kids are my biggest support network these days because we're used to working together. And in our downtime, we talk and I try to help them understand as much as they can. She actually has a couple of interesting links in her article, one of them to a guy who survived the Balkans conflict here about 25 years ago. His name is Selco, S-E-C, I'm sorry, S-E-L-C-O. And he talks a lot about having survival circles. This would be your trusted circles of people who you really would trust with your life. And he actually teaches a webinar on the same topic. She says, ideally, your children should be in the smallest of your small circles. By helping them become more capable and resilient, it will make your little circle more able to withstand whatever life throws at it. And then she does something that, to me, gives her great legitimacy as a writer. 
because it doesn't presume that, therefore, I've given you all the answers, thus I have spoken, now take this information and go run with it. She instead asks her readers, how do you teach your children to be more resilient? She asks, is it something you work on? Is it something you try to do to protect them from harsher aspects of life? If you're teaching kids to be resilient and strong, what methods are you using? And then she invites people to share their experiences in the comments. I don't know if it's something you've given thought to, and I don't know if you've even felt that uh, you have the need for resilience in your own life. But I think she's right about one thing, and I don't say this to be fatalistic. This is just, it's an acknowledgement of a truth that I wish were otherwise, but I think that this is the unpleasant truth and probably better faced squarely. I think things are going to get tougher before they get better. There are some things that are in motion right now that uh, have been set in motion for a very, very long time, and the trajectory this has placed us on is going to include pain that I believe most everybody is going to feel. Some of it will be political, some of it will be economic, some of it is cultural, some of it may be spiritual. I know people who are struggling spiritually like crazy. A great investment of time and energy is in building your own resilience. Not just physically, but mentally and spiritually as well. I hope that's information that at least sparks a little bit of interest in looking at, you know, how would I teach my kids to be that kind of person? Let's talk about uh, being able to distinguish between what is sound and what's unsound. I don't know if you ever, uh, I mean, if you, if you argue, like if you're an attorney, if you're a talk show host, you might argue with people and you'll find that logic is a very handy tool for being able to distinguish between sound and unsound arguments. And I found this excellent uh, primer on the 10 habits of logical people. This is from Daniel Lattier from the Foundation for Economic Education. And this may not give you superpowers, but hey, do it right. You might be able to give uh, Superman or at least Sherlock Holmes a run for his money. Here you go. The 10 Habits of Logical People. Daniel Lattier says, Becoming a logical person isn't just a matter of memorizing and applying formulas or knowing how to tell the difference between a valid or invalid syllogism. Rather, it involves cultivating intellectual habits and skills that, though they seem simple and obvious, are only achieved after years of struggle and education. In his book, Being Logical, A Guide to Good Thinking. Venerable philosophy professor D.Q. McInerney lays out the following 10 habits that people must cultivate if they are to think clearly and effectively. And I have to say, after going through this list, these look like things that I think pretty much anyone could do. I think I could do it. And if I could do it, then certainly you could do it. Number one, they're attentive. Many mistakes in reasoning are explained by the fact that we're not paying sufficient attention to the situation in which we find ourselves, writes McInerney. The logical person has thus trained himself to always pay attention to the details, even in situations that are familiar, lest he make a careless judgment. Now, this brings to mind another truism that I've seen over the years, and that is, if you're the kind of person who reads and understands the fine print, your chances of being misled or led astray are a lot smaller than the rest who just go, yeah, 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 click, agree, and boom, on they go. So they're attentive. Number two, they get the facts straight. 
If a given fact is actually an actually existing thing to which we have access, then the surest way to establish its factualness is to put ourselves in its presence. We then have direct evidence of it. And if we cannot establish factualness by direct evidence, we must rigorously test the authenticity and reliability of whatever indirect evidence we appeal to, so that on the basis of that evidence, we can confidently establish the factualness of the thing. Number three, logical people ensure that their ideas are clear. Our ideas are the means by which our minds understand the objective world. Clear ideas faithfully reflect that world, whereas unclear ideas give us a distorted view of the world. The logical person is constantly testing his ideas to make sure that they accurately depict their objects. Number four, they're mindful of the origins of ideas. They know, for instance, that the idea of cat corresponds to things in the objective world known as cats. As a counterexample, there are a lot of folks out there who just know or have the idea that there existed a female pope named Joan in the ninth century. But if they actually spent time looking into that idea, they'd find that it's widely regarded by respectable historians to have originated in legend. Number five, they match ideas to facts. McInerney writes, to prevent my idea from being a product of pure subjectivism, in which case it couldn't be communicated to others, I must continuously touch base with those many facts in the objective world from which the idea was born. Now, this is easy to do with ideas that have a simple correspondence to things in the world outside of our minds, like the idea of the cat referring to an actual cat. But it's much harder to do, as we've all experienced, when you get into more complex ideas like capitalism and socialism, conservatism and liberalism. For those ideas to remain sound, they have to constantly be linked to and supported by facts that are accessible to all. Number six, they match words to ideas. We can only communicate our ideas to others if we use words that accurately convey those ideas. But finding the right word can be difficult. And when difficulty arises, we should go back to the sources. McInerney says, How do we ensure that our words are adequate to the ideas they seek to convey? Well, the process is essentially the same as the one we follow when confirming the clarity and soundness of our ideas. We must go back to the sources of the ideas. Once we cannot come up with the right word for an idea... Or often we can't come up with that right word because we don't have a firm grasp on the idea itself. Usually when we clarify the idea by checking it against its source in the objective world, the right word will come to us. Number seven, logical people communicate effectively. Meaning don't assume your audience understands your meaning if you don't make it explicit. Speak in complete sentences. Don't treat evaluative statements like, "Uh, that work of art is ugly, as if they were statements of objective fact. Avoid double negatives and gear your language to your audience. Number eight is kind of related here, saying they avoid vague and ambiguous language. The words vague and ambiguous both come from Latin words that mean wandering. Vague and ambiguous language wanders around ideas rather than having a fixed, definite meaning. A logical person uses precise language so his listener knows exactly what he's talking about and can adequately evaluate the truth of his claims. If he refers to more complex terms like freedom or equality, then he makes sure to establish his particular understanding of those terms. Number nine, very important, they, they avoid evasive language. 
The problem with evasive language or language that doesn't state directly what a speaker or writer has in mind is twofold. Obviously, it can deceive an audience, and secondly, it can have a deleterious effect on the people who use it. In other words, it distorts their sense of reality. And finally, this is number 10, logical people seek to arrive at the truth of things. That's the purpose of logic. It's to find the truth, wherever it may lie, whatever it may be. And what determines the truth or falsity of a statement is what actually exists in the real world. Logical truth is founded upon ontological truth, what actually exists. So, the authentically logical person keeps his logic rooted in truth and never lets it devolve into mere verbal trickery. Again, this is from Daniel Lattier, originally printed in Intellectual Takeout. Isn't that useful information, though? Seems to me that could uh, go a long ways towards helping us keep ourselves tethered to reality at a time when a lot of people are hopelessly adrift. This is the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders on the America Out Loud Network. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. It's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together, and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. Because of COVID-19, the average American worries about their immune health four times a day. That's 112 times per year. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains 15 full doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day pill-free gel pack. It tastes great, is convenient on the go, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know.
find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Hey, once again, welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. It's really great to, to be able to, uh, to sit in for my friend and talk about, uh, talk about topics that hopefully matter and, and that go beyond just, you know, oh, curse those Democrats and you know, the whole partisan slogan shouting thing that goes on in, in so much of our media. This is a chance to really drill down and connect ourselves with the things that matter most. And I think that to what, I, what I have found personally, take this for what it's worth, I'm not a doctor, I don't play one on the radio or anything like that, but I found that one of the things that helps me best know where I stand is to, to seek clarity on whatever it is that, uh, that I'm seeking to either promote or defend Clarity is a good thing to have, which brings me to an article I found from Jeff Thomas. I found this on LewRockwell.com this morning. It's called Defining Liberty. Now, Jeff Thomas blogs for International Man. And and just so you know, right up front, one of the things that, that he promotes is, hey, at the rate that freedom is fading in American society, maybe it's time to look for a place to um, expatriate to. And that may not be for everybody. I mean, personally, I I would love to travel the world, but I'm really not ready to to leave the U.S. And, you know, for some people, it's like, well, that would be giving up. That would be just, you know, throwing your hands in the air and saying, I, I quit. So there are a couple of things that kind of keep me around. Plus, there's the idea that I don't know that there's anywhere left in the world where you're actually going to find freedom. I think you kind of have to make it where you find it. But if you're serious about maintaining liberty, then let's start with defining it. And he actually begins with with a photograph of a bunch of absolutely confusing, uh, contradictory, and just brain-dead traffic signs. And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big mishmash. Listen to how he describes this. He says, here we have a most interesting collection of signage. Some low-level civil servant who's in charge of deciding what the motorist may do at this particular junction has become quite thorough in creating restrictions. So as you look at the signs in the photo, you learn that you may not proceed, you may not turn left or right, and most interestingly, in the second sign from the bottom, you may not reverse out. What? (laughs) Essentially, you're stuck here and whatever you do to get out, you're in violation of the rules we've placed upon you. Now, of course, if we were to personally encounter an intersection like this, we might say, this is absurd. They can't possibly hold me to this. But interestingly, under traffic laws, a policeman can cite us for violating the signage. Now, if we're lucky, he might agree, this is absurd, and give us a break. But never forget, his job is to enforce it, regardless of its absurdity. And he enjoys his position, and if he enjoys his position of power, he, uh, as many in his position do, he may just choose to demonstrate that authority for you. And if we defy him, well, then we're in real trouble. So let's start with a question. 
How many laws exist in the U.S. today? By the way, the honest answer is that no one knows. Not even cops, not even judges. It's just too complex to define. There are roughly 20,000 laws on the books regarding gun control alone, and that's just federal laws. State, county, and city laws also exist in abundance, and the level of governmental dominance now exists to such a degree that literally everyone is a criminal, whether they know it or not. Harvey Silvergate, in his book by the same name, estimates that the average American commits three felonies per day. By the way, that's an excellent book, in addition to many lesser crimes. So if you just felt the smugness go out of your sails, you know, you pride yourself, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I'm sorry to tell you this, but uh, you're only a law-abiding citizen because you haven't been caught yet. Guaranteed, you're violating some arcane or obscure bit of code, law, statute, etc. And something that Jeff Thomas points out is that if for any reason the authorities wished to victimize you, you catch the wrong person's attention, they'd find their task quite simple. Because they would simply look at you and then they'd start looking around. Okay, let's look at the laws we have at our disposal and find what he's in, in, in violation of. That's a scary proposition. And yet here's the scarier thought, and that is that there's a general assumption among those who simply accept that the law, those laws that are heaped on their shoulders, that somehow these laws are necessary and that legislators only pass laws if they have no other choice. Jeff Thomas says, in my estimation, this view is diametrically opposite to what's true. One of his own principles regarding governance is it is the primary business of any government to grow its own power and wealth at the expense of its people. Now, that's an important principle to understand as it opens the mind to recognize that governments always move in a direction of increased control. Given enough time, governments will always create a state of despotism. And historically, no government has ever reversed its level of control and introduced greater liberty. So it then follows that each country is in the process of becoming increasingly tyrannical. The only difference between them is the degree of tyranny that's been achieved so far. See, liberty and governmental control are polar opposites. And yet most people have a rather vague perception of the term liberty and they might even find it difficult to define. And that's unfortunate. As it means that when liberty is lost, these same people will be unlikely to recognize that it's being lost. So to that end, here are two good working definitions of liberty, courtesy of the dictionary. The first one says the power or scope to act as one pleases. The second definition says the state of being free within society from oppressive restrictions imposed by authority on one's way of life, behavior, or political views. Now that first definition is kind of interesting, right? It suggests that a person that liberty to uh, to a person means that that I can do exactly as I please. Doug Casey often offers a similarly simple but a little more refined rule of life, and that is, do as thou wilt, but be prepared to accept the consequences. Now, the second definition is probably in keeping with the perception of most Americans around 1800. But today's Americans would caution, well, ideally that would be true, but without our current laws and regulations, there'd be chaos. Libertarians, of course, would disagree and offer only two principles they believe would largely negate the need for laws. Do all that you say you'll do, and don't initiate aggression against another person or his property. 
And again, non-libertarian thinkers would shake their heads and assert that that would result in chaos. The reason for this is because Americans have become indoctrinated to believe this through slow measures. Great quote here from Thomas Jefferson. Even under the best forms of government, those entrusted with power have, in time and by slow operations, perverted it into tyranny. He's talking about our time. And the key to governmental domination is that we tend to tolerate the loss of liberty as long as it's taken away slowly. And maybe with assurances from those in power that, hey, I'm going to make this as, as, uh, with as little pain as possible. I'm going to keep eviscerating your liberty, but I'll try and do it as painlessly as I can. Not a good idea. Now, of course, in the U.S., liberty has been in decline since, uh, well, for at least about 100 years, says Jeff Thomas. But it's been in rapid decline for about the last 20 years. Of course, in all countries at some point, the governmental domination becomes so intolerable that people rise up. Revolution follows, a period of great upheaval and hardship, and eventually a recovery begins and the entire process starts over. So Jeff Thomas says it stands to reason that the best place to be is a country that's already recovered and is in the reconstruction stage, a time when liberty is at its greatest. Now, the U.S. was at this stage in the 19th century. That was a period of great expansion and development. But by the mid-20th century, the rot had set in. America was past its peak and was ready to begin the final, most rapid period of decline. At that time, the Russian Ayn Rand, living in the U.S., stated, quote, We are fast approaching the stage of the ultimate inversion. The state where the government is free to do anything it pleases, while citizens may act only by permission which is the stage of the darkest periods of human history, the stage of rule by brute force. Now, at the time Ms. Rand made this statement, she was largely dismissed. After all, Americans had never seen riot squads dressed in black, heavily armed, barging into homes without a warrant. Authorities did not yet have the legal right to confiscate all the possessions of an individual based on suspicion alone. Yet this is exactly what Ms. Rand warned against when she said the stage of total dominance is fast approaching. So in reflection, we can have a laugh at that confusing gaggle of traffic signs. It was clearly created by a low-level civil servant, careless with his own puffed-up authority to the point of creating an absurdity. But in the larger picture, the signs are equally in place. Liberty in the U.S. at this point is all but extinguished and greater restrictions are being written every day. So that leaves you and me with a choice. We can either accept the signs telling us we're not allowed to go left, right, forward, or back, and to wait until our government instructs us as to what we're allowed to do. Or, we may say, that's it. I'm reversing out of here and finding a location where liberty is still in abundance. I want you to think about uh, one of the current events going on right now under our noses. This just took place uh, within the last couple of days. The uh, eviction moratorium, which was imposed earlier on in the uh, pandemic lockdowns to prevent landlords from evicting people who, because they had been declared unessential or non-essential and uh, were having to essentially live under house arrest and couldn't pay their rent, we were told, well, landlords, you cannot kick people out. And while that may seem like a compassionate thing, this is the mark of of a person who really 
wants to to be um, well-rounded in their approach to policy. You have to think like an economist. You, in other words, you have to ask, what is the desired effect here? Well, we want to make sure people are able to stay in their homes and not just get kicked on the street because their landlord is getting nervous that they can't pay rent. Okay, that's the intended effect. But here's where you get good policymakers, good thinkers, good economists will stop and ask the question, but what else does this do? Who else will be affected? What are the unintended consequences? And when you look at it from this standpoint, it becomes extremely clear. This is stripping private property rights away from the actual property owner. And just so we're clear, the the average landlord is not some fat cat lighting cigars with $100 bills and laughing about all the poor people he's exploiting through making them pay for living space. Paying rent is not a fascist act. So that first eviction moratorium lasted for over a year, or nearly a year. But the Supreme Court said, hey, federal government, particularly looking at the executive branch and saying, you do not have constitutional power to do this. And even worse, it was implemented under the Centers for Disease Control. When did we vote to put Dr. Fauci or any of the the CDC people in charge of making policy, much less making policy that has the force of law. I'll save you some time. The answer is we never did. That is a pure power grab. Usurpation is the word that the founding generation would have used, but that's uh, that's not on a lot of people's tongues these days. So it expired over the weekend. Saturday night, the eviction moratorium went away. And, of course, there was panic in the streets. There was a lady out there sitting in front of the Capitol. I will not leave because I don't want to see this go away. And somehow the Biden administration has stepped up and has basically said, we found a way. Now, they're not being clear on how they found a way, but they've implemented complete with penalties. Of, I mean, we're talking like $100,000 fines. By the way, if one of your tenants you kick out dies, it's a $250,000 fine and jail time. That's from the CDC. And people were celebrating. They were high-fiving. Yay! Yay! We've solved the problem. Now, admittedly, I'm coming at this from, from a free market capitalist point of view. But what I see is that control over that property, as long as there's somebody who's renting in that property, control has just been taken away from the landlord and handed to the tenant. It's now their property. As long as they've got government running interference, we've just seen a huge transfer take place. And yet, who's responsible? Who is still being held to account for paying the mortgage? Yeah, it's the landlord. Who's still responsible for maintaining insurance, you know, liability and property insurance on the place? It's the landlord. So they have all the obligations, but none of the benefits of owning that property. Doesn't that seem just a little bit, uh, I don't know, communistic? (laughs) I can't think of a nicer way to say it. It seems like we are making a great leap forward into socialism. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. Now, when it comes to things political, I try not to wallow in too much political news, but if I want a solid take about what's going on, I have found over time that it's pretty hard to beat Pat Buchanan. Some may say, oh, he's a Washington, D.C. insider, but 
You know, as far as insiders go, I wouldn't say he gets to run with the cool kids. And to me, that I, he has access to a lot of the stuff that's going on there, but I don't think he's accepted by a lot of the establishment types. So his latest column on our great leap forward into socialism has some great food for thought. Here's what Pat Buchanan says. He says, just seven weeks into his presidency, Joe Biden signed a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill. Among the largest spending bills in history, it was passed without the vote of a single Republican. Now, the plan sent direct payments of up to $1,400 to most Americans, extended a $300 per week unemployment insurance boost until September 6th, and expanded the child tax credit for a year. It also put $350 billion into state, local, and tribal relief. Well, this weekend, this past weekend, a bipartisan group of senators crafted a $1 trillion measure to repair and expand the nation's roads, bridges, ports, airports, and broadband. And last week, this trillion-dollar infrastructure plan got a green light from 17 Republican senators, including Senator Mitch McConnell. Boasted Biden, the bipartisan infrastructure deal is the largest infrastructure bill in a century. It will grow the economy, create good-paying jobs, and set America on a path to win the future. Remember what we were talking about with the uh, imprecise and uh, uh, deceiving language that that logical people don't use? Okay, that's a good example of language that uh, reflects reality, not in the least Pat Buchanan says up next is a $3.5 trillion measure to remake America, which is to be enacted without GOP support via a process called reconciliation, which enables the Senate to pass measures with a simple majority. This $3.5 trillion measure would expand social and environmental programs, extend the reach of education and health care, tax the rich, and take on the challenge of the century, climate change. Among programs funded are universal pre-kindergarten for all three- and four-year-olds, two years of free community college, clean energy mandates for utilities, and lower prescription drug prices. Medicare benefits would be expanded, amnesty extended to millions of illegal immigrants. All that's needed for its enactment into law is a Democratic majority in Nancy Pelosi's House. The votes of the 50 Democratic senators and the signature of Biden. Now, Buchanan says, after effecting passage of his $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, if Biden gets the $1 trillion infrastructure proposal and the $3.5 trillion package, he will have enlarged federal spending by $6 trillion. This would constitute the greatest leap forward towards socialism of any American president. With Biden's only rivals being previous record holders, Franklin D. Roosevelt during the 1930s New Deal, and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society in the 1960s. So if Biden succeeds in getting it all, this would not only be a quantum leap toward European-style socialism, it would also cross a divide for America, from which history teaches us there is no return. A billion here, a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking real money said Senator Everett Dirksen in the 1960s when he was leading a badly outmanned Republican minority in the Senate after the Barry Goldwater defeat. Today we talk not about billions, but about trillions. And that $6 trillion in spending Biden is reaching for 
translates into more than $6,000 billion. As of today, however, neither the infrastructure bill nor the $3.5 trillion omnibus bill is a done deal, with the former looking more probable than the latter. But Pat Buchanan says if both are passed, they would create new records and new realities for the U.S. government. The federal debt would exceed the U.S. economy for the first time since World War II. The deficits for this year and last, roughly $3 trillion in each year, already exceed any past deficits since World War II. Passage of the $3.5 trillion omnibus bill would constitute a quantum leap in the number of Americans dependent on the federal government for the necessities of life. It would increase America's ratio of tax consumers to taxpayers. It would be tantamount to an admission, an admission of belief that the real engine of economic growth in America, the truly indispensable provider upon whom an ever-expanding share of the population depend for food, rent, health care, education, and cash income, is the government of the United States, not the American free market system. As for the Republican Party, the conservative party of lower taxes, balanced budgets, and free market solutions to social problems, the fiscal debate will be over in a way it has never been before. Passage of that $3.5 trillion omnibus bill would represent the triumph of great society liberalism over Reaganite conservatism. I'm not seeing that as a good thing. In his first inaugural program, or his first inaugural address, rather, President Reagan declared government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. In his State of the Union address in 1996, President Bill Clinton seemed to concede the triumph of Reaganism over liberalism and socialism. We know big government does not have all the answers, he said. We know there's not a program for every problem. We have worked to give the American people a smaller, less bureaucratic government in Washington. And we have to give the American people one that lives within its means. The era of big government is over. In 2021, Biden and his party are saying Clinton was wrong to concede Reaganism its victory. When there's a big crisis for the country, FDR was right. Big government is the solution. So if the terrain looks unfamiliar, that's because we are crossing a new continental divide. We are entering Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez country. Sorry, I wish that was good news. I don't think it is, though. <laughs> that's, that's just sad. But that's what's being foisted on us right now. And here's the challenge for us. I think we're all very busy. Right? We're trying to keep our, our minds and our eyes on what's happening and you know, trying to stay up on it. But the problem here is, how do, you, uh, how do you fight something at that level? We're too busy fighting with each other. But are you vaccinated? No? Well, then you're a terrible person. You're a grandma killer. We've successfully allowed ourselves to be desi- divided rather, and to sit there and snipe at each other rather than recognize the real problem, which is out-of-control government. And I don't have an answer. So, you know, if I, well, Brian, come on, bring it home. Tell us how we fix this in, you know, eight minutes or less. I can't do that. I can tell you this, though. Whatever the solution is, it more than likely begins with you and I getting our own hearts and minds in order. In other words, rectify your heart, 
Get your house in order. When your house is in order, look to be a contributing part of your neighborhood, your community, to help get it in order. But it starts with us as individuals and works its way up. It's not going to come from the top down. And looking for those top-down solutions and holding our hands out to Washington and saying, please, sir, may I have more? That's, that's how we got into this mess in the first place. Don't do it. You might have to actually declare yourself, you know, your own independence. You may have to secede from polite society in many ways. The question is, would it be worth it to you? And again, I can't answer that question for you. I can only tell you that's, that's one of the areas where we do have control. I think of it this way. Uncle Sam has been giving all these stimulus checks to Americans and, you know, telling you, here, I'm, I'm here to take care of you. Just here, lean on me. Let me put my arm around you. Oh, that straight jacket? No, I'm just putting that on you to keep you warm. It's okay. Let me adjust the buckles a little bit. Everything that it promises you is intended to keep your dependence and, and to deepen your dependence on government. And I understand, and, and I, I love the people who say, well, I don't want your stimulus check. I'll return it. I don't even want it. I admire your, I admire your adherence to, to principle and your conviction. However, the truth of the matter is a lot of people, myself included, could actually use that money wisely. Now, I'm just, this is, this is my approach. Uncle Sugar is throwing checks at me. Here, Brian, I'm taking good care of you. Come on, man. You love me, right? Who's your daddy, huh? Who do you love? Every dime of stimulus money that the government has sent my way has been carefully set aside and earmarked and then spent on things that enhance my position of self-reliance. Things that give me strength to stand up and tell government, I don't need you. But you're using the stimulus check. I am. And it's extra money that has come my way. And, you know, it's nice. It's given me a little bit of breathing room. But my point is, you can put it to good use. You could use it for something. I'm, I'm just going to spitball here. You could use it to, to buy the tools and the necessary equipment and necessary supplies to have an absolutely stellar garden. Maybe build yourself a greenhouse. You don't have to spend a ton of money in order to have a nice greenhouse. Maybe you use it to obtain skills, which once you have obtained them and you work to keep them you know, sharp, they're yours for the rest of your life. It could be skills in first aid, home canning, self-defense. I mean, use your imagination. How to, how to make soap at home, how to make cheese at home, how to do small livestock and, you know, raise rabbits or something for fun and profit. Like I say, use your imagination. I do believe we're being backed into a corner where, where our choices are limited and we're expected to turn to government more and more for our sustenance as well as our direction. I mean, I'm not able to be off-grid just yet. But it's a goal I'm working toward. Solar power, collecting rainwater. Ooh, that's a touchy subject, especially out west. A lot of states say that's illegal. How dare you catch water that fell from the sky? 
How dare you collect the water that runs off your roof? I mean, if you want to really, you know, you want to really rebel, you know, look at uh, look at some of the folks in Colorado. They collect government rainwater to use in their bongs. <laughs> now that's rebellion. But the the point is, if government is going to foist these benefits on us, or at least insist, hey, hey, take this, take this, the best we can do is use it to create some space between government and ourselves. It's being done with dirty money. I mean, I know of churches that won't accept tithings, tithing and offerings if you got that money from illicit sources. If you got it through gambling, if you, I don't know, if you were prostituting girls and you're a pimp, hey, I've been feeling like coming back to church, can I pay my tithing on this money? Well, if it was something that came to you through an unsavory way, yeah, churches say, I don't want it. So in the sense that this money was taken from the taxpayers, it does have kind of a dirty feel to it. And maybe I'm dead wrong. I mean, feel free to disagree with me. It's, it's possible I'm dead wrong on this, but I have absolutely no problem with the person using that money from these government stimulus checks to improve their position in life and build their self-reliance and strengthen their ability to say no when government comes to you with some demand or another. And with the prospect of vaccine passports looming on the horizon, I'd say we have a pretty good chance that we're going to see something like this coming to our doorsteps. How good will it feel to tell them, no thank you? Go peddle it to somebody who actually needs it. I mean, a guy can dream, right? This is the Disciple of Liberty's program. Disciples of Liberty program, that is. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network.